Chapter Five of Ravensdene Court by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The news from Devonport. The police inspector, a somewhat silent, stolid sort of man, looked down from his superior height on Mister Cazalet's eager face with a half bored, half tolerant expression. He had already seen a good deal of the old gentleman's fussiness. "'What is it about the box?' he demanded. "'Certain marks on it, inside the lid, that I'd like to photograph,' answered Mr. Cazalet. "'They're small and faint, but if I get a good negative of them I can enlarge it. And, I say again, you don't know what one mightn't find out. Any little detail is of value in a case of this sort.' The inspector picked up the metal tobacco-box from where it lay, amidst Quick's belongings, and looked inside the lid. It was very plain that he saw nothing there but some, to him, meaningless scratches, and he put the thing into Mr. Cazalet's hands with an air of indifference. "'I see no objection,' he said. "'Let's have it back when you're done with it. We shall have to exhibit these personal properties before the coroner.' Mr. Cazalet carried his camera and the tobacco-box outside the shed in which the dead man's body lay, and began to be busy. A gardener's potting-table stood against the wall. On this, backed by a black cloth which he had brought from the house, he set up the box and prepared to photograph it. It was evident that he attached great importance to what he was doing. "'I shall take two or three negatives of this, Middlebrook,' he observed consequentially. "'I'm an expert in photography, and I've got an enlarging apparatus in my room. Before the day's out?' I shall show you something. Personally, I had seen no more in the inner lid of the tobacco-box than the inspector seemed to have seen. A few lines and scratches, probably caused by thumb or fingernail, and I left Mr. Cazalet to his self-imposed labours, and rejoined the doctors and the police who were discussing the next thing to be done. That Quick had been murdered, there was no doubt. There would have to be an inquest, of course and for that purpose his body would have to be removed to the nearest inn, a house on the crossroads just beyond Ravensdene Court. Search would have to be set up at once for suspicious characters, and Noah Quick of Devonport would have to be communicated with. All this the police took in hand, and I saw that Mr. Raven was heartily relieved when he heard that the dead man would be removed from his premises, and that the inquest would not be held there. Ever since I had first broken the news to him, he had been upset and nervous. I could see that he was one of those men who dislike fuss and publicity. He looked at me with a sort of commiseration when the police questioned me closely about my knowledge of Salter Quick's movements on the previous day, and especially about his visit to the Mariner's Joy. Yet, said I, finishing my account of that episode, it is very evident that the man was not murdered for the sake of robbery, seeing that his money and his watch were found on him untouched. The inspector shook his head. I'm not so sure, he remarked. There's one thing that's certain. The man's clothes had been searched. Look here. He turned to Quick's garments, which had been removed, preparatory to laying out the body in decent array for interment and picked up the waistcoat. Within the right side, made in the lining, there was a pocket, secured by a stout button. 
That pocket had been turned inside out. So, too, had a pocket in the left hip of the trousers, corresponding to that on the right in which Quick had carried the revolver that he had shown to us at the inn. The waistcoat was a thick, quilted affair. Its lining here and there had been ripped open by a knife, and the lining of the man's hat had been torn out, too, and thrust roughly into place again. Clearly, whoever killed him had searched for something. "'It wasn't money they were after,' observed the inspector, "'but there was an object. He'd that on him that his murderer was anxious to get, and the fact that the murderer left all this gold untouched is the worst feature of the affair, from our point of view.' "'Why now?' inquired Mr. Raven. "'Because, sir, it shows that the murderer, whoever he was, had plenty of money on him,' replied the inspector grimly. "'And as he had, he'd have little difficulty in getting away. Probably he got an early morning train north or south, and is hundreds of miles off by this time. But we must do our best, and we'll get to work now.' Leaving everything to the police, obviously with relief and thankfulness, Mr. Raven retired from the scene, inviting the two medical men and the inspector into the house with him, to take, as he phrased, a little needful refreshment. He sent out a servant to minister to the constables in the same fashion. Leaving him and his guests in the morning-room, and refusing Mr. Cazalet's invitation to join him in his photographic enterprise, I turned into the big hall, and there found Miss Raven. I was glad to find her alone. The mere sight of her, in her morning freshness, was welcome after the gruesome business in which I had just been engaged. I think she saw something of my thoughts in my face, for she turned to me sympathetically. "'What a very unfortunate thing that this should have happened at the very beginning of your visit!' she exclaimed. "'Didn't it give you an awful shock to find that poor fellow so unexpectedly?' "'It was certainly not a pleasant experience,' I answered. "'But I was not quite as surprised as you might think.' "'Why not?' she asked. "'Because I can't explain it quite. "'I felt yesterday that the man was running risks by showing his money as foolishly as he did,' I replied. "'And, of course, when I found him, I thought he'd been murdered for his money.' "'And yet he wasn't,' she said. "'For you say it was all found on him. "'What an extraordinary mystery! "'Is there no clue? "'I suppose he must really have been killed by that man "'who was spoken of at the inn. "'You think they met?' "'To tell you the truth,' I answered, "'at present I don't know what to think, "'except that this is merely a chapter in some mystery, "'an extraordinary one, as you remark.' We shall hear more, and in the meantime, a much pleasanter thing. Won't you show me round the house? Mr. Raven is busy with the police inspector and the doctors, and I'm anxious to know what the extent of my labours may be. She at once acquiesced in this proposition, and we began to inspect the accumulations of the dead-and-gone master of Ravensdean Court. As his successor had remarked in his first letter to me, Mr. John Christopher Raven, though obviously a great collector, had certainly not been a great exponent of system and order. Except in the library itself, where all his most precious treasures were stored in tall, locked book-presses, his gatherings were lumped together anyhow and anywhere, 
all over the big house. The north wing was indeed a lumber house. He appeared to have bought books, pamphlets, and manuscripts by the cartload, and it was very plain to me as an expert that the greater part of his possessions of these sorts had never even been examined. Before Miss Raven and I had spent an hour in going from one room to another, I had arrived at two definite conclusions. One, that the dead man's collections of books and papers was about the most heterogeneous I had ever set eyes on, containing much of great value and much of none whatever. The other, that it would take me a long time to make a really careful and proper examination of it, and longer still to arrange it in proper order. Clearly, I should have to engage Mr. Raven in a strictly business talk, and find out what his ideas were in regard to putting his big library on a proper footing. Mr. Raven at last joined us, in one of the much-encumbered rooms. With him was the doctor, Lorimore, whom he had mentioned to me as living near Ravenstein Court. He introduced him to his niece, with, I thought, some signs of pleasure, then to me, remarking that we had already seen each other in different surroundings. Now we could foregather in pleasanter ones. Dr. Lorimore, he continued, glancing from me to Miss Raven, and then to the doctor with a smile that was evidently designed to put us all on a friendly footing. Dr. Lorimore and I have been having quite a good talk. It turns out that he spent a long time in India, so we have a lot in common. "'How very nice for you, Uncle Francis,' said Miss Raven. "'I know you've been bored to death with having no one you could talk to about curries and brandy pawnees and things. Now Dr. Lorimore will come and chat with you. Were you long in India, Dr. Lorimore?' Twelve years,' answered the doctor. "'I came home just a year ago.' "'To bury yourself in these wilds,' remarked Miss Raven. "'Doesn't it seem quite out of the world here, after that?' Dr. Lorimore glanced at Mr. Raven, and showed a set of very white teeth in a meaning smile. He was a tall, good-looking man, dark of eye and hair, moustached and bearded, apparently under forty years of age, yet at each temple there was the faintest trace of silvery grey. A rather notable man, too, I thought, and one who was evidently scrupulous about his appearance. Yet his faultlessly cut frock suit of raven black, his glossy linen and smart boots, looked more fitted to a Harley Street consulting room than to the Northumbrian cottages and farmsteads amongst which his lot must necessarily be cast. He transferred his somewhat gleaming, rather mechanical smile to Miss Raven. On the contrary, he said, in a quiet, almost bantering tone, this seems quite gay. I was in a part of India where one had to travel long distances to see a white patient, and one doesn't count the rest. And I bought this practice knowing it to be one that would not make great demands on my time, so that I could devote myself a good deal to certain scientific pursuits in which I am deeply interested. No, I don't feel out of the world, Miss Raven, I assure you. He has promised to put in some of his spare time with me when he wants company, said Mr. Raven. We shall have much in common. Dark secrets of a dark country, remarked Dr. Lorimore, with a sly glance at Miss Raven. 
over our cheroots then excusing himself from mr raven's pressing invitation to stay to lunch he took himself off and my host his niece and myself continued our investigations these lasted until the lunch hour they afforded us abundant scope for conversation too and kept us from any reference to the grim tragedy of the early morning mr cazalette made no appearance at lunch i heard a footman inform miss raven in answer to her inquiry that he had just taken mr cazalette's beef tea to his room and that he required nothing else and i did not see him again until late that afternoon when as the rest of us were gathered about the tea-table in the hall before a cheery fire he suddenly appeared a smile of grim satisfaction on his queer old face he took his usual cup of tea and dry biscuit and sat down in silence but by that time i was getting inquisitive well mr castlet i said have you brought your photographic investigations to any successful conclusion yes mr castlet chimed in miss raven whom i had told of the old man's odd fancy about the scratches on the lid of the tobacco-box we're dying to know if you found out anything have you and what is it he gave us a knowing glance over the rim of his teacup ay he said young folks are full of curiosity but i'm not going to say what i've discovered nor how far my investigations have gone ye must just die a bit more miss raven and maybe when you're on the point of demise i'll resuscitate ye with the startling news of my great achievements i knew by that time that when mr cazalet relapsed into his native scotch he was most serious and that his bantering tone was assumed as a cloak it was clear that we were not going to get anything out of him just then but mr raven tried another tack fishing for information you really think those marks were made of a purpose cazalet he suggested you think they were intentional i'll not say anything at present answered mr cazalet the experiment is in course of process but i'll say this as a student of this sort of thing yon murderer was far from the ordinary miss raven shuddered a little i hope the man who did it is not hanging about she said mr cazalet shook his head with a knowing gesture ye need have no fear of that lassie he remarked the man that did it had put a good many miles between himself and his victim long before middlebrook there made his remarkable discovery now how do you know that mr cazalet i asked feeling a bit restive under the old fellow's cocksureness isn't that guesswork no said he it's deduction and common sense mine's a nature that's full of both of those highly admirable qualities middlebrook he went away then as silently as he had come and when a few minutes later i too went off to some preliminary work that i had begun in the library i began to think over the first events of the morning and to wonder if i ought not to ask mr cazalet for some explanation of the incident of the yew hedge he had certainly secreted a piece of blood-stained mud-discoloured linen in that hedge for an hour or so why had it anything to do with the crime had he picked it up on the beach when he went for his dip why was he so secretive about it 
and why if it was something of moment had he not carried it straight to his own room in the house instead of hiding it in the hedge while he evidently went back to the house and made his toilet the circumstance was extraordinary to say the least of it but on reflection i determined to hold my tongue and abide my time for anything i knew mr castlet might have cut one of his own feet on the sharp stones of the beach used his handkerchief to staunch the wound thrown it away into the hedge and then with a touch of native parsimony have returned to recover the discarded article again he might be in possession of some clue to which his tobacco-box investigations were ancillary altogether it was best to leave him alone he was clearly deeply interested in the murder of salter quick and i had gathered from his behaviour and remarks that this sort of thing investigation of crime had a curious fascination for him let him then go his way something perhaps might come of it one thing was very sure and the old man had grasped it readily this crime was no ordinary one as the twilight approached making my work in the library impossible and having no wish to go on with it by artificial light i went out for a walk the fascination which is invariably exercised on any of us by such affairs led me half unconsciously to the scene of the murder the tide which had been up in the morning was now out though just beginning to turn again and the beach with its masses of bare rocks and wide-spreading deposits of seaweed looked bleak and desolate in the uncertain grey light but it was not without life two men were standing near the place where i had come upon salter quick's dead body going nearer to them i recognized one as claig the landlord of the mariner's joy he recognized me at the same time and touched his cap with a look that was alike knowing and confidential so it came about as i'd warned him sir he said without preface i told him how it would be you heard me a man carrying gold about him like that and showing it to all and sundry why he was asking for trouble the gold was found on him i answered and his watch and other things he wasn't murdered for his property plague uttered a sharp exclamation he was evidently taken aback you hadn't heard that then i suggested no he replied i hadn't heard that sir bless me his money and valuables found on him no we've heard naught except that he was found murdered here early this morning of course i concluded that it had been for the sake of his money that he'd been pulling it out in some public-house or other and had been followed dear me that puts a different complexion on things now what's the meaning of it in your opinion sir i have none i answered the whole thing's a mystery so far but as you live hereabouts perhaps you can suggest something the doctors are of the opinion that he was murdered here yesterday evening that his body had been lying there just above high water mark since probably eight or nine o'clock last night now what could he be doing down here at this lonely spot he went inland when he left your house the man who was with Clegg offered an explanation there was he said a coast village or two further along the headlands it would be a short cut to them to follow the beach 
yes said i but that would argue that he knew the lie of the land and according to his own account he was a complete stranger ay broke in clegg but he wasn't alone sir when he came here he'd fallen in with somebody somewhere that brought him down here and left him dead and who was it there was no answering that question and presently we parted clegg and his companions going back towards his inn and i to ravenstein court the dusk had fallen by that time and the house was lighted when i came back entering by the big hall i saw mr raven mr cassalet and the police inspector standing in close conversation by the hearth mr raven beckoned me to approach here's some most extraordinary news from devonport where quick came from he said the inspector wired to the police there this morning telling them to communicate with his brother whose name you know was found on him he's had a wire from them this afternoon read it he turned to the inspector who placed a telegram in my hand it ran thus noah quick was found murdered at lonely spot on riverside near saltash at an early hour this morning so far no clue whatever to murderer end of chapter five